to the inquisitorial representative from Inquisitor A.B. Prince. My lord, I felt it pertinent to send you a copy of my recently compiled report concerning the Amphilium Project, an event, a series of events, shall we say, which occurred just prior to the fall of the Astronomicon, the fall of Cadia, and the return of our beloved, um, uh, regent, that's the word, the Lord Gilliman. I feel that this may be a useful educational tool for our fellow members of the Ordos, as it shows the difficult situations one may find themselves in the carrying out of their duties. A useful lesson, you might say. Far be it from me to comment upon the methods or morality of our fellow members of His Majesty's glorious Ordos, but nonetheless, it may be educational. Where possible, I have used all official records and have only interjected when necessary to ensure a more cohesive narrative. As ever, I remain your loyal servant, Inquisitor A.B. Prince. The Anfilium Project From the Conclave of Har, Bakker, to Inquisitor Solomon Locke. By the authority of the immortal Emperor of Mankind, this mission briefing and any transcript thereof are classified information. For Ordo Xenos Inquisitor Solomon Locke, or his duly appointed deputy's eyes only. Priority grade, Omega, Absolutum. Regarding Beta Amphilian 4. As of 807-1850-M41, routine astropathic communication with the research facility on Beta Amphilian 4 was broken. Repeated efforts to re-establish contact with the facility's command complex have failed. It is a matter of some urgency that contact is re-established, and to this end, an investigation team is to be assembled under your command and dispatched to the Amphilian system in order that this anomaly be investigated and rectified. It is my suspicion that the facility at Beta Amphilian 4 has been the location of prescribed and heretical activity by radical elements within the Adeptus Mechanicus Departmento Biologis. The holy guidance of the Emperor's Tarot would indicate such, but the Inquisitor should take his own reading and guidance. Because of the dangerous nature of this mission, the following units have been assigned to Inquisitor Locke's command for the duration. The Cadian 266th Regiment, uh, see the attached details, orders have already been transmitted and confirmed. Special Unit Detachment D-99, orders have already been transmitted and confirmed. Adeptus Mechanicus Biologus Exploratus Team, led by Magus Biologist Arthen, seconded for the mission's duration from Gryphon 4 Forgeworld. Communications have been forwarded to the Legio Astartes Red Scorpions Battle Barge Ailes Bane, with a request for assistance. It is our understanding that a strike force has been assembled and will be placed at the Inquisitor's service. The transport vessel Cephistus has also been seconded to the Inquisitor's service. This is an unmarked freighter under the command of Captain Morden. The Inquisitor's team should embark for Amphilion no later than 810-1850-M41 and make best course to rendezvous with the Red Scorpion's battle barge in the Ufer system. From there, the Cephistus will make course for the Amphilion system. 
ETA 819-4850-M41. Operations to begin no later than 82008508501. m 41 Following this mission briefing is the planetary survey of the fourth moon of Beta Amphilion. I advise the Inquisitor to study it closely. All the information available has been included. Special notice should be made of the highly dangerous and possibly prohibited nature of the work being undertaken on Beta Amphilion 4 and the alien climate his forces will be exposed to for the duration of this mission. Extreme caution should be exercised at all times. On arrival at the target location, you should investigate the reasons for the loss of communications and seek proof that dangerous and unsanctioned research has been taking place on Beta Amphilion 4. All efforts should be made to recover any samples and data from the facility as evidence against those who have strayed from the Emperor's light. These orders are effective immediately. The Emperor's will guide you. Editor's Note uh, Regarding the planetary survey, without going into too much detail, uh, the moon in question is a sulfuric, humid, jungle-like world with limited visibility because of the atmosphere, uh, creating a very choked and horrible place to be. To Inquisitor Lord Varius, Conclave of Her Backer, from Inquisitor Solomon Locke. Regarding Beta Amphilion 4, receipt of new orders confirmed. This communique is by request of further information regarding the nature of the threat facing my force. Your orders refer to the dangerous nature of the mission, and that dangerous and unsanctioned research has been taking place on Beta Amphilion 4 but do not illuminate any further exactly what this is. I must request further information, so that the nature of the threat I am to encounter is clear to me. I can only assume that by the inclusion of an Astarte strike force, the threat rating is extreme. A short mission time would generally indicate that the threat would not be worthy of the Emperor's finest troops, and as a loyal uh, servant, far be it from me to question the wisdom of your lordship, uh, but could not the Astartes, Red Scorpions, be better employed in some other critical war zone? I will proceed on the basis of the mission briefing until I receive your response. Inquisitor Locke. To Inquisitor Locke. All information currently available to your security rating has been made available. This mission is of critical importance. Proceed with all haste. I do not expect the mission time to exceed two days. Standard Terran time. Transmission ends. From Inquisitor Locke. Cephistus, the Amphilian system. By the Emperor's mercy, the Cephistus has delivered us safely through the perils of the Immaterium to the Amphilian system, and preparations for the first investigations into the fate of Beta Amphilian IV have begun. Despite repeated attempts, the Cephistus has failed to make contact with the control centre on Beta Amphilian IV. From this, I must conclude that the facility is no longer inhabited or has rebelled entirely. My tarot readings indicate that we will find no survivors. As a matter of caution, we are treating the moon's surface and any occupants we do locate as extremely hostile. In conjunction with the Astartes commander Cullen, the Red Scorpion's veterans of First Company are, even as I dictate, donning their tactical dreadnought armour and completing their arming rituals. Their Thunderhawk gunship is prepared, armed and ready to transport them to the surface. The squads have completed their tactical briefings 
and made their plans for securing the facility. As commander of the expedition, I have requested final approval of all operations, something to which Commander Cullen seemed to have only reluctantly agreed. The Red Scorpion's first mission is to search the control complex and landing fields and secure them for our subsequent landings, as well as the Space Marines. The other commanders within my force have also been briefed. Major Jure, D Company, 99th Elysian Drop Troop Regiment, will follow the Space Marine forces to the ground, with the 266th Cadian Regiment providing perimeter security once Biologist Arthens team and my own retinue move to the surface. I do not expect this operation to last longer than your original two-day plan, during which time the Cephistus has orders to withdraw to the system's outer reaches. The great, armoured bulk of the Red Scorpion's Terminators descended the Thunderhawk's front ramp into the cold darkness and mists of Peter Amphilian Four, illuminated only by the gunship's landing lights and their tactical dreadnought armour's integral spotlights. Each heavy, metallic footfall was deadened by the thick white fog. Helmet communicators crackled into life as storm bolters and assault cannons swept the surrounding jungle for targets. Squadron, deploy right. Squadrio, deploy left. Squadarak with me, ordered Commander Cullen. The three squads moved out, one after another, moving with well-rehearsed coordination as they approached the command complex's outer buildings. Emerging through the mist, the Terminators identified an entrance and closed in. All was silent. All was still. The base seemed deserted. No lights shone. No machinery whined. There was no sign of power. At the sealed doorway, his battle brothers stood sentry, while Sergeant Darek activated his chain fist. With an angry growl, the diamantine-tipped blades roared into life, a whirring blur as the white lightning of its power field crackled in coruscating patterns about it. The metal of the doorway screamed its resistance in a shower of sparks. The din shattered the silence as the chain fist sliced deep, clean through the door. Four seconds, five seconds, six seconds passed as the sergeant cut a new entrance for his squad. With a resounding clang, the old door fell inwards, revealing only a pitch-black corridor beyond. Squad Derek advance. Brother Darin, take point, ordered Commander Cullen, and without a word, his squad moved in response. Brother Dayan's assault cannon nosed through the still-smoking doorway as he stepped into the command complex. The other squad members followed behind him in single file, the corridor being just wide enough to accommodate one of the massive armoured suits at a time. Cautiously, they moved forwards, and checking every corner and doorway as they advanced. Inside, the Terminator squads moved forwards, a corridor by corridor, room by room, with only their spotlights to guide them through the darkness. Slowly, methodically, and with the practiced ease of decades in combat, they advanced in search of the control center. Without any power supply, each door had to be noisily cut down, but nothing within stirred. The Terminator sergeant's inbuilt auspexes remained clear. No contact. The three veteran squads moved deeper into the control complex until Commander Cullen and Squad Darak located the command center. It too was deserted and no lights blinked on the control panels. Cullen checked the air purity, his visor display flickering to show the 
chemical breakdown of the air sample. Air is within breathable parameters, he announced, as he broke his helmet seal with a repressurizing hiss and pulled it off. The air was dank and cold, with a faint taste of ammonia, but it was nothing his enhanced metabolic system wouldn't cope with. His communicator crackled into life. All stations, room. Garrison sector secured. No contact, but there are signs of combat. Blast doors have been sealed. There is some impact damage and also what could be corrosive damage. There was a fight here, but no sign of bodies. Over. Cullen confirms. Room, hold your position. Cullen to Rial. Sergeant, confirm your location and status. Commander, we have swept the lower level. No contact. The facility is deserted. Squad standing by. Over. Confirmed. Room. Secure the perimeter. Rial regroup at the command center. To Inquisitor Lord Varius. Amphilian Base. Beta Amphilian 4. The initial investigation team has secured the base's control complex. There has been no contact with the inhabitants. The control complex was found to be deserted. All the power has been shut down, including a complex force field generator grid that I can only surmise formed containment areas. There were some signs of combat, but no bodies have been found, and the facility remains intact. I have transferred to the surface to take direct command there. Descending via shuttle, I have had my first sight of Beta Amphilian 4. From orbit, much of the planet is swerved in clouds. Breaking the cloud layer, I was faced with a gloomy world of matted and decaying vegetation. Upon landing, I can confirm the surface is dark, dank, and strangely silent. This is no fecund jungle, but a dreary place of dead plant matter, where ammonia-rich mists shroud all in a cold, silence in blanket. Even when directly exposed to the sun, and ground temperature rises above zero, the higher clouds diffuse the light, leaving us in a perpetual gloom. This lasts until... The moon's orbit returns us to utter darkness. Harmful levels of ammonia have been detected as the mists rise and all men with exterior duties have been issued chemical rebreathers and are under orders to carry respirators at all times. These are to be worn when the ammonia readings reach hazardous levels. Orders have now been issued to the Imperial Guard commanders to begin their own landing operations. Priority has been given to the Elysian troops. Captain Morden of the Kephistus is overseeing loading and boarding operations and the first landing craft's ETA is at 198. I have set my team to work on finding detailed plans of the facility on Beta Amphilian 4 as our location remains unknown to me and the tactical planning for further operations will depend upon finding a schematic of the base. It seems this facility consists of a large command complex, now secured, with an attached landing field. To Inquisitor Locke. I have heard your first reports with interest. The loss of communication can then be explained by the loss of all the facility's personnel. The reason for their mysterious disappearance must be ascertained. Given the nature of the base's work, it falls to all of you to recover whatever you can of its work. The samples and data must be recovered and returned to me for further analysis. This is now the priority for your mission. To Inquisitor Lord Varius. Amphilian Base, Beta Amphilian 4. Megas Biologist, Arthur, has submitted a preliminary report based on the 
Information recovered from the facility's data core. Part of the base's original mission. Uh, brief synopsis is included below. Since 745M41, the threat of Tyranid Hive Fleets has been continually growing. Losses in fighting have been extreme, and the demand for manpower has strained even the Departmento Munitorum's vast resources. Projections indicate that such heavy losses are unsustainable in the long term. Whilst the Tyranids may be halted, the indirect effect for the Imperium's rule in other segmentums could be disastrous. More efficient ways of meeting and defeating the Tyranids must be sought. Amphilian base may be part of this process. A series of covert biologist research facilities were established to study Tyranid genetic material and the race's super-evolutionary traits in a controlled environment. Ways of interfering in the Tyranids' ability to rapidly evolve, adapt and overcome new threats have been sought, with the experiments eventually leading to new anti-Tyranid biological weapon technology. The first successful outcome was the development of mutagenic acids, now deployed in Hellfire Bolter Rounds by the Adeptus Astartes. Amphilium Research Facility A large part of the moon's surface is used as a research facility. There are three principal laboratory facilities and a central control complex, along with other smaller outposts which provide support to the main laboratories, such as power generators, water pumps and purifiers, as well as equipment storage facilities. A network of force field generators encloses large areas of the moon's surface. These are containment areas for the experiments. There are three principal containment areas, coded areas Alpha, Beta and Omega, as well as other smaller subsidiary isolation areas. The containment field network is controlled from its own central control complex and powered by a series of power field generator stations. I now see the potential peril that my forces and I are in. Swift action is needed to save ourselves if, as I now suspect, the Tyranids are indeed here on this moon. I have conducted an emergency briefing. With the information now at my disposal, my first priorities are 1. To reactivate the containment fence, as these represent our most effective defence. They should keep the enemy at bay long enough for me to complete the mission objective of recovering data. 2. Begin operations to search the laboratory facilities with all haste. Commander Cullen has already begun the transfer of his forces from the command complex to Laboratory Area Delta. The plan of action is as follows. 1. Further investigations have revealed that the generators for each of the force field fences has been deactivated. This event is inexplicable to me, as there is no damage, but it must have led to the loss of the entire facility. All four of the generatorium will need reactivating as they provide the power required to maintain the impenetrable force field barriers. It will be the Elysian's first task. I have issued orders for them to take and hold the generators long enough for the servitors to restart the system. 2. Meanwhile, the Red Scorpions will begin the process of investigating the laboratory sites. As yet, all three bases remain a mystery. It is probable that hidden within these sites is any valuable research data that this base has collected. The Space Marines will sweep each site systematically in a search-and-destroy operation. Once secured, Imperial Guard troops will move in behind and form a new protective garrison, whilst the Space Marines move on to the next site. With the Cadians in position, Magus Biologist Arthens Exploratus team can move in and begin the process of collating any useful data and samples. 
Cullen and his first company veterans will again lead the way, with his tactical squads arriving via Thunderhawk as a second wave of reinforcements. Whilst the search and destroy operation is underway, a company of Cadians will move overland to the first laboratory site in an armoured convoy of Chimeras. Only once the Cadians are in position will the Magus biologists follow. In all, I expect each operation to take no longer than 8 hours standard Terran time. The entire operation will therefore take 24 hours. I continue to plan for a two-day deployment on this perilous moon. Time enough to search all the laboratory facilities, recover any surviving experimental data, and embark back onto the Cephistus. After two days, I will gladly abandon this planet, file a request for exterminatus. To Inquisitor Solomon Locke, After receiving your report, I urge you to move quickly, as your mission is now in a position of utmost danger. Recovery of any useful data remains your priority. I have, with all haste, dispatched the Inquisitorial Cruiser Fearless Resolve to the Amphilian system, along with reinforcements. The vessel's captain will be under your command upon arrival in orbit, and should you still feel it necessary. The Exterminatus Order has already been signed and sealed. Upon completion of your mission, purge this menace forever from the face of the galaxy. Unfortunately, given the nature of the Immaterium, I can give no ETA for the cruiser, but hope that the simple knowledge that aid is already on its way will strengthen you and your men's resolve. It is imperative that you continue to keep me fully informed. As ever, we strive only to fulfil the Emperor's will. Amphilian Base, Laboratory Complex, Delta. Val, contact. Enemy movement 200 metres and closing. The sudden communication from Sergeant Rial got the attention of everybody in Cullen's force. Rome, I can confirm, Commander. Contact is closing fast. Enemy the to the front. All squads move to engage. Commander Cullen instructed. And before he had finished the command, Sergeant Darak was on the move, his men directly behind him. Over the comms net, all heard the familiar sound of storm bolters opening fire, the distinctive bark, bark, bark of the rounds launching, followed a split second later by the crump of the explosive warhead detonating. Real, I see them, Commander, identified as gene stealers closing from the east 100 metres, numbers unknown, squad engaging, for the Emperor! Behind Sergeant Real's brief report was the sound of battle. The assault cannon sounded like the tearing of fabric as it opened fire. The Battle Brothers of Squad Real unleashed a wall of fire that cut the Tyranids down like grain before the scythe. The jungle was torn to shreds by the explosive rounds, which splintered trees, set smouldering fire to the undergrowth, and blasted gene-stealers into pulp as the armor-penetrating rounds punched through their chitinous carapaces to explode within. It was carnage and in a few seconds it was over. Real, target eliminated. Falling back, sir. Rome, Orspex reads multiple contacts, squads engaging. Now it was Rome's squad's turn, and the firing flared again as his men blasted the new enemy. More gene-stealers were coming. They were closing in from every direction, and the Red Scorpion's Terminators fell back to the laboratory buildings, fighting all the way. Storm-bolter barrels steaming from the heat of firing. Inside the complex, Cullen organised his five battle brothers to cover all the entrances. At the western doorway, Brother Dian watched down the blacked-out corridor as the first aliens reached the sealed blast doors. 
claws impacting outside, buckling the plasteel and gouging huge rents as the gene stealers battered their way through. For just living flesh and muscle tissue, the power in the claws was awesome. In a frenzied attack, the big door was torn apart like it was made of parchment. As the gene stealers tore through, Diane engaged his assault cannon's motor, the weapon's six barrels spinning into a blur. The first gene stealers were leaping through now, with a brief litany to the weapon's spirit. Death to the foes of the Emperor. He pressed the trigger. The assault cannon roared, loosing a stream of rounds that turned the first gene stealer in the doorway into a fine mist of blood and ichor. The second, third, and fourth also died as they leapt forward. More were at the doorway, scrambling inside, heedless of the certain death that awaited within. Diane fired a second sustained burst and a third. The gene-stealers died, arms and claws flailing as if in defiance as the rounds shredded through them. Again and again, Darren fired. The ammunition counter on his helmet display struggled to keep up as the assault cannon sprayed a stream of shells into the swarm. The runes turned from green to orange to red as his ammunition ran low. The weapon's barrel was glowing red-hot. The corridor between Brother Darren and the door was filled with the dead. It was a slaughterhouse of steaming shredded aliens. The ammunition warning room blinked. Less than 50 rounds remained. Diane stepped backwards. Less than two seconds were for firing. He couldn't hold out much longer. Once his ammunition was gone, he would have to activate his power fist and charge. The gene stealer's claws had torn the blast door apart, but his adamantine and ceramite armor Plating would resist longer, keeping him alive long enough to take some of the creatures with him. Then, the Gene Stealer's furious, reckless attack stopped. As the smoke and steam cleared, the Gene Stealers were gone. Had they realized there was no entrance to be gained here, only destruction, and scurried away to find another way in? Meanwhile, outside, Squad Real and Rome were fighting their way back to the laboratory complex. Uh, they were pounding across the soft ground blasting left and right as they lumbered along as fast as their bulky armour would allow. Sergeant Rome brought up the rear of his squad, sweeping behind his men with short bursts of fire. The gene stealers launched themselves from their cover, sprinting out of the darkness with ferocious speed. Even the veteran sergeant's well-honed reactions were no match for the bioengineered killing machines of claws and bone. Unseen from his right, a gene stealer pounced, all raking claws and exposed fangs as it barreled the sergeant over. Its claws raked across his armor, furiously scrambling for purchase on the adamantine plates. The sergeant fought back, his power fist crackling lightning as he grasped for the gene stealer's head. Already a second, third and fourth gene stealer were closing in for the kill. Rome's groping fist caught the first gene stealer, its head in his grasp. The crushing fingers of his power glove squeezed hard. The resistance of the gene stealer's hardened bones made their servos squeal, but the bone cracked and the gene stealer's skull burst like an overripe fruit, splattering Rome with blood and brains. He staggered to his feet, only in time for the second gene stealer to impact, square in the chest, and both fell backwards in a mass of arms, legs, and claws. Brother Valka, turned to see his sergeant grappling on the ground. He took aim, blasted the closest gene stealer in half with a burst of fire, and ran back to aid his squad leader. The swarm was closing in all around them now, 
claws and fangs bared. Valkyr launched himself at another gene-stealer, swinging his power fist in an arcing left hook that punched the creature off its feet with bone-splintering force. As he did so, another gene-stealer struck, driving its claw directly at his visor. The powerful blow shattered the glass and drove onwards into the Terminator's face, smashing his cheekbone and gouging the flesh from his face. Disorientated by the terrible wound, his helmet filling with blood, a second crushing blow blindsided the Space Marine, and blood leaked from under his armour. Brother Valkyr stumbled and fell, wildly firing a storm bolter as he did, but the gene stealers were upon him, wounded and disorientated, they tore him apart. Nearby, the gene stealers were also overwhelming Sergeant Rome, and in a rain of blows, his armour eventually cracked. Pinned to the ground, but fighting hard with the last of his strength, the sergeant struggled bravely before the gene stealer's claws also ripped him apart. On his helmet display, Commander Cullen watched the biometric readouts of Sergeant Rome and Brother Valkyr flatline his first casualties. They had died honourably, as every space marine must, and would soon join their emperor. No time for litanies to the dead. First, we must take vengeance for the lost. Despite their losses, the Terminators regrouped, and directed by Commander Cullen, they mounted a stout defence, holding back the gene-stealers until they withdrew back into the jungle darkness. After the din of battle, silence descended again. In all, Cullen had lost two battle brothers to the sudden ferocious attack, and four more were wounded, one seriously. Commander Cullen called down the rest of his strike force. He needed reinforcing and rearming. Minutes later, the Thunderhawks emerged through the clouds to touch down, disgorging squads of space marines along with their dreadnought, Brother Haller. Behind them followed the transporters, rhinos and razorbacks carried under their bellies. The red scorpions quickly strengthened their hold on the laboratory complex. The Tyranids would not have gone far, and no doubt at this very moment they were gathering their strength for a new attack. It was now a race against time. The Tyranids were coming, and the containment fence must be activated. Whilst the Space Marines began their operation to search the free laboratory complexes, it was vital that the containment fence network be activated. Nobody knew how many Tyranids might be lurking out there in the swamps and jungles. It was not likely to be many, with the planet only housing enough Tyranids as samples for experimentation. But even so, without the containment fences, a Beta Amphilian 4 could rapidly become a death trap for anybody on the surface. Inquisitor Locke had given the Elysian drop troops the mission of restarting the power grid. They would need to secure all four power generators and reactivate them. To assist each platoon, he detailed a technical servitor, pre-programmed with all the information it needed to accompany the drop troops. From the command center, Major Jura and the Inquisitor would oversee the operation. The drop troopers had to move quickly, for every minute lost was a chance for the tyranny creatures to close in. Major Jura collected his men and briefed them on the operation. There would be one platoon detailed to capture each generator. The technical servitor they needed to restart the power grid would accompany each platoon. Each platoon would also be under the cover of a vulture gunship, should they encounter the enemy. After a hurried briefing and weapons preparation, the four platoons lifted off and eased out into the gloom, vanishing from sight as each aircraft was embraced by the encircling mists. Moving low and slow over the canopy, Flying in close formation, each platoon headed for its target. From each Valkyrie, heavy bolter barrels protruded from the open side doorways, each door gunner scanning the ground for the enemy. The journey to the target was brief, 
but in his transport, Lieutenant Jurev had time to rehearse the plan of attack in his mind. When the air crew confirmed they were over the target, his men would rappel down and surround the generator building, supported by a sentinel squadron to keep any lurking enemy at bay. Meanwhile, his own command squad and the Technomad Servitor, a strange hybrid half-machine half-man that currently sat inert and lifeless in the corner, would touch down close to the generator building and move swiftly inside. It had to assess any damage and work fast to get the generator operational. The Emperor alone knew what horrors were waiting down there for Jurav and his men, but the longer his platoon stayed on the ground, the greater the danger would become. Major Jura had emphasized that this would be a rapid operation, drop in, get the job done, and quickly get out, back to the relative safety of the command complex. Through his helmet, Jurev could listen to the comms traffic as the pilots and aircrew talked over their link. He could also hear Major Jura overseeing the entire operation from back at the operational HQ. By the time the Valkyries had dropped down over the jungle for their final approach, the Vulture gunship was already closing on the target, and taking up position for its attack run, should the ground troops call for it. Each gunship was fully laden with rockets and autocannons, as the short distance to their target meant that additional fuel tanks were unnecessary. The Vulture would remain on call for the duration of the operation like a protective angel hovering over Lieutenant Giraffe's men. Following the drop, the Vulture would circle, awaiting targets, whilst the Valkyries climbed away and circled at a safe distance to await the mission complete evacuation order. The Valkyries fled to a halt at about 30 meters altitude, and the rappel ropes spiraled down to the ground below. The door gunners yelling, Go, 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 from both doors. One after another, the drop troops leapt onto the rope and slid downwards. Friction heat burned through the troopers' jump gloves, warming their palms before they impacted hard on the ground and rolled away. During the deployment, the platoon was vulnerable, so speed was of the essence. Squads regrouped to the calls of their sergeants, instructions yelled through the howl of engines from overhead. They fanned out as men grasped for their weapons and scurried to take cover. Three sentinels plunged to the ground, their grav shoots cushioning the impact on their legs. Pistons extended and the sentinels erected themselves. Pilots ran quick systems checks, then activated their weaponry. The jungle floor was dark, dank, and acrid with the stench of ammonia. Boots pounded over the soggy ground as the Laz gun's inbuilt flashlights cut through the gloom. Sergeants flicked on their surveyor units, short-range tracker devices built into their helmets to seek for possible enemy targets. For the moment, all was clear. The chemical reader strips on their uniforms read safe, but many retained their respirator units anyway, avoiding the noxious atmosphere for as long as possible. As the squads and sentinels formed their defensive perimeter, Lieutenant Jurev's Valkyrie swooped down behind them, the rear ramp already dropping as the aircraft hovered low, its powerful jet engines blasting the jungle floor into a swirl of mud and debris. The command squad leapt the final meter or so onto the ground, along with the servitor. Lieutenant Jurev indicated the way to the generator house and set off at a flat run, his men directly behind him. In a scene replicated at each of the generator sites, the Elysian squads deployed and prepared for battle. The Tyranids had not remained inactive, already long slender claws and fanged moors that oozed poisonous bile were being flexed. Under the directions of a hive mind, 
The Tyranids moved with startling speed to react to the Elysians' incursion. It was as if they knew by some strange force of precognitive power that the generator sites would be important to the humans. They had not left them unguarded. Invisible sentries were hidden close by and now moved stealthily into position to strike. The first Jurev knew about the Tyranid attack was a sudden penetrating scream that echoed off the trees and through the vines, then slowly died in a strangled gurgle. Suddenly the comnet was alive with shouted reports. Men were down. Firing started. The rapid staccato snap-snap of las guns from left and right. The lieutenant called his voxcaster bearer to him and grabbed the handset to raise the air support. His men were under attack, as yet from exactly what or where was unclear, but the firing was growing in intensity. The explosion of a grenade sounded in the distance, as if out of nowhere the Tyranids were ambushing his perimeter squads. The squad net was a chaos of shouted reports and calls of trooper down, trooper down. As the battle flared, Jurev gathered his men at the generator building and ordered a las cutter to work against the sealed doorway. Cut the door, he cried, and with a blinding flash the las cutter powered into life. The Elysian guardsman worked the powerful cutter over the door, turning it into molten metal as he cut a bright smouldering path around the doorway. After maybe 15 seconds the door panel fell inwards with a resounding clang on the metal floor inside. Jurev indicated a squad member to go first and watched him duck into the darkness within. He then pushed the sluggish techno-servitor through the blackened steaming entrance. Urgently, torch beams flickered around to check the corners for lurking enemies. In the darkness, there was an explosion of movement, the swish of air as a claw slashed downwards with inhuman speed. Ahead of the lieutenant, Trooper Radrick screamed. Jurev opened fire, as did the squad member next to him. Laz blasts impacted on the metal walls and ricocheted in crazy patterns. He couldn't see if he had hit anything or not, and fired again just in case. Was the creature still in here? Kneeling now, the lieutenant carefully scanned the darkness. Something moved, blindingly fast. But before he could react, a deafening blast of heat beside him sent Jurav sprawling. He felt his skin stinging. With a roar of superheated air, the melter gun hit and whatever it was lurking in the darkness died, turning into a slimy pile of oozing ichor by temperatures that could melt plasteel in a fraction of a second. Jurev lit a flare and tossed it in to reveal the scene. Trooper Radrick had been ambushed by a lictor. Its claw had punched a hole clean through his guts and made a gaping wound in his back that sprayed blood and flesh on the ground. Radric had fallen, and when his companions dragged him away, he left a smear of blood on the grilled metal floor. To Jurev, Radric already looked dead, pale in shock, his eyes unblinking. The lictor had taken the full force of the melter gun hit at point-blank range, and had been turned into molten slag in an instant. Its toxic remains steamed, filling the room with a foul stench. Unaware and uncaring of the horrible scene within, the servitor went quickly to work, locking its multiple cable leads into the power generator's control console. The panel flickered into life. Outside, the battle was all happening in a rush. The sound of the vulture gunship overhead became a roar, as its rockets and cannons flailed the jungle below with fire. The veteran drop troopers were fighting hard. The jungle had come to life. 
as something swift, silent, and almost invisible had pounced, all claws and fangs, rending two men into bloody pieces before anybody had seen it. Nothing had registered on the squad sergeant's surveyor helmet. Then came the gaunts, bounding out of the darkness, scythe-like talons pumping. They had emerged from their subterranean brood nests, roused from their hibernation and eager to kill. Surveyors were suddenly swamped with targets. The drop troops fired, illuminating the jungle with the light of las gunfire and the muzzle flash of shotguns. Fearless, and without pause, the gaunts leapt forward, and the Elysians shot them down. This foe, brutal and single-minded, would never back down. The victory here could only be won by those willing to fight and die to the last. It was ugly, but the men of D Company had all fought the Tyranids before, and what they faced now came as no surprise. There would be no quarter given here, no tactical withdrawals, no surrenders, only death, and more death, until either one side or the other had no one left standing. That was the mindset that the men who faced the Tyranids had to have and Lieutenant Gerov's platoon had all seen it before. Lesser men would have run in fear, but not these men. They killed and killed again, with Lasgun, shotgun and grenade, whilst overhead their vulture air cover launched volley after volley into the swarms. Volleys that felled trees with the force of their explosions, the rounds kicking up dirt and creating a shockwave that knocked the gaunts off their feet. With grim resolution, the Elysians scourged the jungle until the tide turned and the Tyranid swarm stopped coming. Meanwhile, the Servitor completed its programming and the power generator station slowly came to life again. Power began to hum and fizz through the great cables. Dial needles twitched and moved, indicating to Lieutenant Jurov that the power grid in this sector was up and running again. The Servitor disconnected itself from the console, and with its strange mechanical voice pronounced, Program complete. With his men, hard-pressed, it was all Jurov needed to hear. It was time to leave before any more of his men died. He called his comms man over again and got on the Voxnet. All squads, all squads, fall back on my position for immediate withdrawal and evacuation. The Valkyries also heard the order and banked down to meet the men now retreating to the landing zone. Emerging from the jungle, the battle-scarred survivors, some walking wounded, others dragging badly injured casualties, made for the Valkyries now approaching. Covered by the Sentinels and the still-fit survivors, Lieutenant Jurov's men embarked into their aircraft, which lifted off one by one. Once airborne, Lieutenant Jurov called through to Major Jura to report that his mission had been successful. Power Generator 2 was online again and the containment fence in this sector could be reactivated. Back in the command complex, the Inquisitor's team were awaiting that confirmation. Confirmation was received from each platoon, one by one. All the generators were working again. They immediately set about the task of reactivating the containment fences. It would keep the Tyranids out, and was their best defense against this enemy. We have successfully reactivated the containment fences. All genitorium are now working and a garrison Acadians has been posted at each site for additional security. The Tyranids are present on Beta Amphilium 4 in, as yet, unknown numbers. One of Magus biologist Arthur's tasks is using the facility's data core to estimate the size of the infestation. 
Although I suspect the Tyranids have attacked us with their full strength and been repulsed with heavy losses, the containment fence will keep them at bay until the conclusion of my mission. At Laboratory Area 1, the Red Scorpions have cleared the Laboratory Complex and the Cadian Fourth Company are on their way to garrison the site. Resistance was reported to be intense, but Commander Cullen has proved himself to be a courageous and able commander. Cadian forces, now on the planet's surface in force, are also constructing a strong perimeter defence about the command complex, using Hellhound Flame Afroa tanks to clear the lines of fire. They have been digging in their heavy weapons and sentry guns. Should the fence fall, these will be our second line of defence, capable of inflicting withering losses. I am now confident that the situation is in hand, and all sites will soon be secure. Two Cadian companies are preparing to leave the garrison areas, Gamma and Theta, once Commander Cullen reports the sites are cleared. A summary of Magus biologist Arthur's first findings follows. Tyranids on Beta Amphilian 4, report by Magus biologist Arthur, on information recovered from Data Core. It seems that the project on Beta Amphilian 4 has been successful, initially at least. Within the containment areas, the Tyranid creatures had been allowed to develop. A few experimental samples had been released and observed. What had then happened within the containment areas had surprised everybody. From only a few initial organisms, their numbers soon started to multiply rapidly, and their racial strains began to diversify with astounding speed, but only into related genus. Even the local flora had been affected, exhibiting alarming new features such as poisonous spines and accelerated growth. In containment area Alpha, the vines grew with such speed around the containment fence generators that they had to be culled with flamethrowers to prevent damage. Within containment area Alpha, the Tyranids had initially shown aggression, smaller creatures attacking the fence on numerous occasions, but being repulsed with heavy losses each time. When a sample taken from the area was noted to show what was believed to be the beginning of wings, the entire area of Alpha was liquidated, and all samples within destroyed. By this time, over 200 creatures were recorded from an initial example sample of just three. In Area Beta, the Tyranids vanished, and nothing was seen of them. They showed no aggression, and observation towers reported no sightings. Those samples taken from the area were found to be in a stupefied state, as if hibernating. Area Gamma was similarly quiet, until a catastrophic failure of the containment fence, cause still unknown, allowed the samples to escape. It was these creatures, having carefully bided their time, that suddenly appeared in mass, overran the defences of Laboratory Gamma and killed all the workers. What happened next must be a matter of pure speculation, as there have been no survivors found. Acadian Command at both the Command Complex and the Laboratory Area Delta report that their perimeters have come under attack. The containment fences have remained intact and proved an impenetrable barrier to the Tyranid creatures, which came under heavy fire and quickly withdrew out of range of the garrison's weapons. I surmise from these weak attacks that the Tyranids have expanded their main strength and now realise that further attacks are futile whilst the containment fence remains in place. To Inquisitor Locke. This is an auto-responsive message. Inquisitor Lord Varius is unavoidably detained at the moment. 
but will give your report his full attention as soon as he is able. Until then, he leaves matters in your capable hands. Praise the Emperor. Amphilian, base, laboratory complex Delta. The 4th Company of Cadian Infantry were on the move, loaded up inside and hanging onto the outside of their Chimera carriers. With supporting sentinels leading the way, they moved out, engines gunning them through the tangled jungles and splashing through shallow swamplands, headlights and spotlights illuminating the gloomy jungles as the guardsmen inside jostled their way over land. The going was slow, but the column forced its passage through the entangling vines. Wherever a path could not be forced by dozer blades, a hellhound flamer tank simply incinerated the jungle to clear the way. By the time the Cadians linked up with the Space Marines' remaining security outpost, the fighting was long over. The Cadians rolled in and debussed to take over, posting men around the perimeter and sighting heavy weapons teams with good fields of fire. They felt safe behind the perimeter fence, which hummed with invisible power not far from the laboratory buildings. Also arriving was Magus biologist Arthur and his servitors. The squat, square-nosed little transport shuttle emerged from the darkness, landing lights winking as it set down. The cargo ramp opened and outstrode the Magus with his retinue of servitors just behind. Cadian troops rushed in behind them to grab the extra supply crates of heavy bolter and missile launcher ammunition inside. Magus Arthur immediately moved to begin an analysis of the laboratory's data core and recover any remaining samples to be returned for further investigation. At Laboratory Area Theta, Commander Cullen's surviving veteran Terminators began as before, deploying from a Thunderhawk gunship and sweeping the deserted corridors and rooms. Behind the Terminator Vanguard followed the tactical squads of 6th Company. Derek to Cullen. Commander, I have a reading. Movement at 300 meters advancing to contact. Sergeant Derek led his squad into the laboratory complex first. He paused as he watched the Auspec's readings. The enemy was ahead of him. He moved on, Storm Bolter at the ready. Behind him, the bulk of his men advanced, power servos whining with each heavy footfall of their Terminator armor. The door ahead was sealed. All was silent and dark. The sergeant's chain fist made short work of the doorway. Beyond lay a bio-laboratory, and in the centre was a macabre operating table, complete with a cluster of remote cutting arms. The walls were lined with stasis tanks, cylindrical flasks, inside which dead samples were suspended. He shone his suit light over the tanks. Inside were embryonic forms of tyrannic creatures, shriveled, lesser versions of their lethal adult equivalents. Several of the tanks were cracked and empty. Some samples may have escaped. He alerted his squad members. Reading is at 100 meters. His suit's specs was tracking the target. It was coming this way. Brothers Nigers, Malik, and get the western door. Darren, your rear guard. Zakir with me. The sergeant advanced across the room to another doorway, wedged the blade of his chain fist into the gap and levered it hard open. Before him, the corridor was black. His suit light showed a crossroads ahead, reading at 60 meters. He stepped forward again, moving purposely, Brother Zakir at his shoulder, 40 meters. They were getting closer, 30 meters, 20 meters. 
He reached the junction of corridors and swung his heavy suit round to cover left. Zakir covered right. Still no targets. His suit light illuminated the corridor, but the grilled metal floor was gone. Instead, there was just a black hole leading downwards, ten meters. The enemy was right on them. They would appear at any moment. They're below us, Derek warned at the last second. Zakir fired first. A short burst of bolts roared and detonated in the darkness ahead. Something screamed and died. He fired again. The dark hole ahead of Sergeant Derek was a sudden explosion of movement. Claws and arms flashing in his spotlight beam. At this range, Derek couldn't miss. He fired a sustained burst downwards and felt the macro explosions of his storm bolter's warheads rock him in his suit. There were more creatures coming. He fired again, but there were too many to stop. Back to the laboratory, he ordered Zakir, who stepped backwards, walking with precise strides as he fell back. At the doorway, Brother Malik appeared. The barrel of his heavy flamer leveled on the corridor. Meanwhile, Sergeant Derek fell back himself. He fired another long burst, then another as the emerging gene stealers flung themselves at him. Blood and bile splashed over his armoured suit. Suddenly a gene stealer leapt down onto the sergeant from where it had been clambering along the ceiling, above his aim point. The impact of claws on adamantium armour screeched and echoed. Instantly, a second gene stealer pounced. Derek fired the last of his ammunition, stumbling under the weight of the gene stealer now clinging to him, trying to prise open his armour. A third creature leapt at him, pounding a blow square into his chest plate that left him reeling against the wall. Zakir stepped past Malik in the doorway. The air in the corridor was suddenly an inferno. Roaring orange flames engulfed the corridor, incinerating the gene stealers and spilling burning fuel all over Sergeant Darek. Despite the intense furnace-like heat, Darek was safe inside his armour. It would resist the flames long enough for him to escape the gene stealers' clutches. He threw the flaming, blackened body of a gene-stealer off his shoulders and stepped past Marek into the laboratory room. His armour was still alight in places, but it would not burn for long. Even the paint was fire-retardant for just such an eventuality. The whole episode hadn't even phased the veteran sergeant. Hold them here, he ordered brothers Malik and Zakir who sprayed the burning, smoke-filled corridor with more fire to keep the gene-stealers at bay. Derek to Cullen, Commander. The enemy are in force in this sector. Request reinforcements. We are holding them at... He glanced down at the sign on the doorway, now lying on the floor where it had fallen after his chain fist had cut through it. Laboratory Theta 2. Cullen confirmed, Sergeant. Came the distant crackling reply. Hold your position. Squad Real will move up through Laboratory Theta 3 and approach the crossroads from the east. Once they are in position, your squad is to advance again, and you will have the enemy trapped between you. Clear the sector, then report in. Over. That it confirms, Commander. Over. He flipped the ammunition catch on his storm bolter, and the weapon's empty magazine hit the floor with a clang. He replaced it with a new one and turned to his men. Hold these two doorways until I give the order to advance. The Red Scorpion's Terminators... Supported by their power-armoured brethren of the Sith Company, they swept the laboratory complex room by room, corridor by corridor, destroying the lurking gene-stealer broods which had been quietly waiting for the enemy to arrive. By 203, all three of the laboratory facilities were clear of enemies and secured. Whilst the Space Marines and Imperial Guard were on the move, so were the Tyranids. Deep in the jungles, the Hive Mind had stirred them to action. 
Unknown to the men of 4th Cadian Company, their convoy had been spotted, and the aliens were now closing behind them. So far, the containment fences had kept the Tyranids out, but the hive mind had not sat idle whilst the Imperial forces completed their mission. On Beta Amphilian 4, the Tyranids' response to being imprisoned was patient and simple. Secretly, in dark recesses deep in the swamplands, hidden in underground brood nests, the hive mind had begun to evolve to counter its imprisonment. It had taken time, but the hive mind was patient, very patient. It had the infinite patience of an alien race that had spanned the entire galactic void, of a hungry hunter that knew easy prey would soon be in reach. Now, where once had grown weapon-carrying limbs or razor-sharp claws, grew wings. Amphilian Base Laboratory Complex Delta. Central to the defense of the laboratory perimeter was 4th Company's long-range ground surveyor unit and searchlight teams. To alleviate the problems of fighting in darkness, the regiment deployed a number of ground-mounted searchlights with which to illuminate the surrounding jungle, hence making targeting any attacking Tyranids far easier. To detect the Tyranids, the regiment was equipped with long-range ground surveyors. This equipment, manned by the company headquarters unit, was much like a squad-level surveyor often carried by sergeants and junior officers, except with a far longer range. It would make approaching the guardsman's perimeter undetected much harder. Suddenly, at 2.02, the surveyor's sweeping scan was filled with multiple enemy contacts, as if from nowhere a swarm of tyranids had appeared from containment area C1. The alarm was raised. Men scrambled to man their weapons, jumping into their weapon pits or behind sandbags, las guns at the ready. Whilst the searchlights came on, crisscrossing the area with beams that lit the jungle in pools of white light, mortars fired a volley of flares in a high, arcing trajectory into the sky. The illumination rounds exploded in a bright light. Illuminated by the flares, flying just above the canopy, came swarms of gargoyles, flitting over the containment fence as if it did not exist. In the blink of an eye, the Tyranids were inside the perimeter. Heavy weapons and sentry guns started to fire, but too late. The Tyranids were already upon the guardsmen, dropping down to savage the unsuspecting soldiers with claws and fangs. Captain Ryzak was in shock. His strong perimeter had been compromised so quickly. The fence was active, but it had not helped. Behind the swarming gargoyles came the larger winged warriors, dropping down amongst the guardsmen's position, living weapons spitting acid and bile, raking left and right with poisonous clawed talons. Behind them came the looming shadow of a hive tyrant, its massive leathery wings beating as it dropped to the ground, powerful talons lashing out to eviscerate two hapless guardsmen in one sweep. It roared its triumph into the sky, summoning more creatures to it. The flare's light faded. In the darkness, confusion reigned as some men tried to stand and fight. Others fled. Most died screaming. Captain Ryzak saw his entire company disappear in under five minutes. The containment field had not saved them at all. The Tyranids had already evolved beyond that defense. The Cadian Guardsmen broke, running for their lives as fast as they could, back to the imagined safety of the laboratory complex. But it was too late. More gargoyles were behind them, cutting off their retreat. To his right, a Hellhound flame tank exploded, sending burning wreckage and white-hot Prometheum raining down all around them. Men were on fire, 
Human torches screaming as they stumbled clear, their uniforms burning. Fire from the Tyranid weapons was crisscrossing the complex, living ammunition that screamed through the air, and upon impact burrowed into the skin. Captain Ryzak, desperately waving his sword and las pistol to rally his fleeing men, felt a round hit him, square in his carapace chestplate. The impact forced all the air out of him. With horror, he saw the acidic round eating away at his armor. His chest was burning from the heat. He felt like he was on fire. Get it off, he screamed, to nobody in particular, as he fumbled with the support straps. Too late. The ammunition cut through the armor and into his flesh. Blood boiling up in the captain's throat spilled forth from his nose and mouth. He collapsed backwards, convulsing with pain, trying to scream in agony but only spewing a fountain of blood until his face was drenched in it. Contorted in pain, he died as the burrowing creature ate into his heart. Others died just as grimly and worse. It was a slaughter without mercy. Those that ran locked themselves inside the laboratories, but it would not take long for the Tyranids outside to break in. Biologist Arthur looked up from his magnetrope viewer as the door to the laboratory was thrown open. A bleeding, mud-spattered guardsman, half-crazed with fear, fell inside. Outside, Arthur could hear the sounds of battle. He had been so engrossed in his studies, he hadn't even noticed the fighting. What is the meaning of this intrusion? He demanded, his voice a rasping, electronic hiss through his Vox implant. Another guardsman followed the first. Get back to your stations, Arthur ordered. The guardsman babbled something about being under attack, being overrun, everybody dead. Suddenly, all the lights went out, plunging everybody into pitch darkness. Someone screamed. Arthur recalibrated his eyes to infravision, and at the doorway, where the guardsman had just been stood, was a looming monster. Wings folded behind it, claws and fangs already drenched in blood. It roared a challenge. With a quick sweep of its claw, the last guardsman flew across the room, crashing into the machinery, leaving a bloody stain. The warrior ducked through the doorway, hissing as it locked the biologists in its gaze. Backing away, Arthur fumbled for his las pistol. The creature stalked after him, barging aside laboratory equipment that crashed to the floor. The Magus drew his pistol. Too late. A long, thin claw flicked out, impaling him through the stomach. The claw wrenched him off his feet. The Magus was choking on his last breaths as the creature lifted him closer. Face to face with the Tyranid warrior, the Magus could smell its acrid stench, feel its cold breath from its fang-filled maw. Its eyes were black pits, cold, lifeless orbs that betrayed no emotion or intelligence, like an automaton or servitor, it was just a machine, designed only for killing. For a brief moment, the creature stared back, inspecting him, then, with a flick of its claw, flung the two separate halves of the Magus across the room, screeching in triumph. Their heavy weapons abandoned or destroyed, 4th Company had been all but annihilated by the surprise aerial attack. Inquisitor Locke and Colonel Shacker tried to raise 4th Company, but the Voxnet was a jumbled garble of cries for help and screaming terror. Then it was silent, just static. The Company was gone, and the Magus with them. Both Commanders knew that Laboratory Site Delta had been lost. There would be no survivors. Amphilium Base, Beta Amphilium 4. Our situation on the moon has deteriorated. 
Disaster at the first laboratory facility has resulted in the complete loss of 4th Company of the Cadium Regiment. Unbeknown to me, in any of my previous encounters with the Tyranids, they've shown the ability to evolve flight. This has rendered the containment fence totally ineffective, and my forces are now exposed to the full horror of the Tyranid threat. It is also my duty to report that during the surprise attack, Magus Arthur and his team were lost. No contact has been possible. I must commend their souls to the Emperor. The loss of this team is of critical importance to my mission, as without them, I no longer am able to fully analyse the data recovered. My astropath reports that communications are becoming less reliable. This may be because of the unforeseen actions of the warp, but I fear it has more to do with the awakening of the hive mind, as it now appears to sever my communications off-planet. These three developments have forced me to reconsider both my position here and the continued validity of this mission. I have not yet ordered an evacuation, but have initiated the process should it become necessary. The Kephaestus has been recalled to orbit in order that a swift evacuation, without any unnecessary heavy equipment or vehicles, can be made. Commander Cullen has completed his search and destroy operation at Laboratory Area Theta, and more Cadian troops are now in place to defend that site. His force has now moved on to Area Theta. I expect that operation to be completed rapidly, as the Tyranid threat continues to grow. I shall endeavour to recover what data and samples I can without the Magus's aid, until such time as evacuation becomes prudent. To Inquisitor Locke. This is an auto-response message. Inquisitor Lord Varius is unavoidably detained at the moment, but will give your report his full attention as soon as he is able. Until then, he leaves matters in your capable hands. Praise the Emperor. Amphilian Base Command Complex. At the main control complex, Elysian Guardsmen manned the perimeter defences. The report of the surprise attack at Laboratory 1 meant everybody was already on full alert. Surely it would not be long before the winged Tyranid swarm descended upon them. Eyes and weapons scanned the skies for the first signs of an attack. For now, the surveyor units read all clear. However, it was not from above that the expected attack came. The hive mind would not be so easily predictable as to repeat the same trick. It knew that a new attack would be expected, but not from below. The key to the human's defence was their containment fence, and it must be destroyed. Without warning, the ground below the guardsmen began to vibrate. A moment of confusion was ended when the earth below their feet exploded upwards, followed by the fangs and claws of a ravener. The first guardsman hit was lifted clear into the sky, arms and legs flailing as he fell into a bloody heap. Another ravener, and then another exploded upwards in a whirl of scything claws. The guardsmen opened fire as the ravener brood tore into them. As one brood emerged from the ground, an Elysian drop trooper darted forwards and slung a heavy demolition charge at it. As the creatures freed themselves from the ground, the charge exploded in the fountain of earth, hunks of flesh and a red mist of blood as the raveners were torn apart. Now the creatures were sliding across the ground on their powerful muscular tails, deaf spitters and spine fists belching living ammunition. In return, the Elysians were fighting grimly. Again, the Tyranids were upon them before the guardsmen could bring heavy weapons to bear. Again, the hive mind was one step ahead. Suddenly, the raveners were everywhere. Men were fighting for their lives, the well-prepared defences thrown into chaos in an instant. 
But the Elysians quickly regrouped and poured the fire of las guns, plasma guns, and melter guns at their slithering attackers. The Raveners flung themselves at the guardsmen. Many died screaming as claws tore them apart or bioammunition ate through their flesh. But the steaming, fetid corpses of the Raveners also littered the battlefield. The surprise attack was being repulsed. At the containment fence's control room, Sergeant Orris the squad had found cover beside a sentry gun and were pouring fire into the advancing Reveners. Uh, the sergeant aimed his underslung grenade launcher, fired, and saw the crack grenade impact, its small, intense explosion tearing the creature limb from limb. The Raveners had stopped coming now, but still the ground below them shook with powerful vibrations like an earthquake, which grew stronger and stronger. Orez's men were being tossed left and right as the floor of the building buckled, bent and then splintered. The forelimbs of a huge beast emerged, great claws which swept left and right, smashed the sentry gun to pieces. One drop trooper was cut clean in two, his upper torso hitting the back wall and leaving a bloody stain. The others ducked clear and ran. A trigon smashed its way upwards, lasgun rounds ricocheting harmlessly off its chitinous carapace. The control room was a mass of sparks and fires as the panels were shattered. Sergeant Orris backed away, still shooting until his lasgun's power cell was empty. On the perimeter, the electronic hum of the power field suddenly died. The fence spluttered, then failed. As suddenly as they had attacked, the Ravener brood was gone. Survivors slivered away back down their holes, leaving the bodies of their own dead upon the floor, their raid complete. Inquisitor Locke, grabbed his weapons and raced towards the attack, but arrived too late. He saw the containment fence's control centre was a smoking ruin, smashed beyond repair by the Trigon's claws. Elysian guardsmen lay scattered about, some wounded, still crawled towards safety, and called out for aid, but most had been torn into sticky wet piles of offal. The containment fence was gone. The Inquisitor knew that now they would feel the full strength of the Tyranids. He also knew he did not have the men to stop them. We had to act now, and they were all going to die. Enemy contact, closing fast. The surveyor controller warned over the Voxnet. In response, the Cadian gunners manned their weapons. The base's reactivated defense turrets swiveled into position as new enemy targets approached fast. On the landing fields, men were at work, rearming and refueling the Valkyries and Vultures, preparing them for their next mission. The Elysian drop troopers saw the enemy late, as they skimmed out of the mists, low over the jungle and the defunct remains of the containment fence. Huge levery wings drove them towards their targets. Great scythe-like claws glistened under their long serpentine torsos as the Harridans swooped in. The autocannons opened fire, explosive rounds detonating about the targets as they banked and dived. As the fire streaked overhead, the Elysian aircrews on the ground scattered, running for cover. Uh, the first Harridan swooped just over the ground, its claws flashing out to smash into the Valkyrie with a blow so powerful and fast it severed both the tail booms as the aircraft was flipped over. The second Harridan struck, smashing the aircraft with its claws left and right, slashing and hacking the grounded aircraft were defenseless. Valkyries and vultures began to burn as fuel and ammunition ignited. Their first attack run complete, the two Harridans wheeled away, climbing high as the autocannon turrets tracked them, 
still barking out a stream of shells. The creatures banked, turned and raced down again in a headlong dive, screaming as they came. The second flypast caused as much devastation as the first. Aircraft were damaged and wrecked as the Harridans crisscrossed the landing field. As one creature dived down again, the autocannons on the base found their range. Shells impacted, gouting blood from the creature which screamed in pain as it lashed out. More rounds hit, tearing through its wings and torso. Terribly wounded, the Harridan banked again, and in one last reckless act of destruction dived headlong into the airfield, crashing into the ground, claws still slashing in a suicidal attempt to wreak more destruction. Amidst burning and smashed aircraft, the Harridan came to rest, autocannon rounds still hammering into its dead body. Amphilian base, beat at Amphilian 4. The containment fence has been destroyed. I must now order the evacuation of my forces from the planet. There is nothing to be gained now by remaining here. I have recalled all my forces to the Central Command Complex and shall regroup my full strength here until the Cephaestus is in position or the Inquisitorial Cruiser and reinforcements I have been promised arrive. I must defend the landing field if there is to be any hope of escape. As fast as the attack had come, it was over. Their raid complete, the Harridans flapped their wings hard and climbed away into the sky. Behind them, the landing field was a scene of devastation. Smashed and crippled aircraft were scattered about. Flames were spreading and engulfing more aircraft. Ammunition was exploding. Shocked, the survivors emerged from their cover. Some aircraft might be salvageable, but the sudden attack had left most as smouldering wreckage. Amphilian Base, Laboratory Complex Theta. Commander Cullen's search and destroy missions were complete, but the situation on the ground had changed. The loss of Laboratory Area Delta and the biologist team had invalidated much of his men's work. He had received the communication to withdraw back to the command centre to regroup with the rest of his men, and quickly re-embarked onto the Thunderhawk for the short journey back. As Commander Cullen's Thunderhawk raced through the gloomy atmosphere, the crew suddenly found themselves flying into a dark, tangled cloud. Thousands of spore mines, drifting high, with long tentacles dangling grotesquely below them, were suddenly all around them, like great fetid balloons full of acid, bloated and ready to explode. The aircraft jolted suddenly as a big spore mine exploded close by and set off a chain reaction. One after another, the drifting spores detonated, sending bioacid and shrapnel spraying out, tearing into the aircraft's hull and melting its armor plating. The Thunderhawk's airframe was rocked hard, and rocked again, as one after another, the cloud spores spontaneously exploded. The pilot banked hard to dive out of the cloud, but with the spores' long tentacles slapping against the nose and windscreen as the airborne mines homed in. The Thunderhawk was their prey, and driven by some unknown force, the spore mines gave chase, exploding close by. The assault was relentless. As the control complex tracked the Thunderhawk's position, they received an emergency distress call. The message was garbled and the voices heavily hidden by static haze. But they could ascertain that the Thunderhawk had been badly damaged and was going to attempt a crash landing. The Thunderhawk's warning beacons blared as the heavy gunship plunged out of control towards the swamps below. The pilot and co-pilot wrestled to regain control, but their ship was critically damaged. They were going down too fast. The spore mine explosions had damaged the engines and large sections of the tail had been torn away. Losing power, altitude and control, the pilot and co-pilot fought with the flight controls. The co-pilot managed to shut down the fusion reactor 
reducing power in an attempt to slow their descent. The pilot got the Thunderhawk's nose up, aiming for a flat landing. Engines screaming, the gunship raced towards the ground. In a great plume of muddy swamp water, over 100 tons of heavily armed and armoured dropship plunged nose first into the swamps. Crashing through trees and tearing up the vines, the stricken aircraft ploughed through the water on its belly. Wings and weapons were torn off in the impact. Restraining harnesses buckled and broke, sending everybody inside crashing to the floor. Amphilian-based command. Odds are there'll be no survivors from the crash. Sending more men out to look for them in the jungle is condemning those men to death as well. It is a fool's errand. I will not sanction any rescue mission. Our priority must be our survival until an evacuation can be effected. We must complete the mission. Apothecary Rial glowered at the Inquisitor, barring his way. We will not leave our brothers to rot in this place. Dead or alive, they must return to the chapter. The chapter must have its due. The Space Marine growled his response, and before the Inquisitor could answer, snapped his helmet into place. This mission is under my command. You and your brothers are under my orders. The power of the Emperor is invested in me. Dare you gainsay the word of an Inquisitor, warned Locke. The apothecary simply ignored him, flicking his comms channel open. Squadreal, Avner, rendezvous on me. He called his men to him, brushing past the Inquisitor as he left. The argument was over. Locke let the Space Marines go, but not without a final warning. You and your chapter have not heard the last of this insubordination. The blast doors slid shut behind the Space Marine as he stepped out into the darkness. Apothecary Rial's men rushed to their vehicles and clambered aboard. The Thunderhawk's locating beacon was giving off a weak signal, but it was enough for them to home in on. Once everybody was on board, the convoy of Razorbacks and Rhinos headed off into the jungle. The vicinity of Containment Area Omega. Superheated engines steamed in the water as the mud and spray cleared. After the violence of the impact, everything was again quiet and still. Slowly, a side door cracked open, and from within emerged the space marines that had survived the crash landing. The Thunderhawk's thick, armoured belly plates had taken the brunt of the crash. They had buckled and torn, but they had saved the space marines within. The survivors emerged into the dark and forbidding jungle. Helmet lights flickered on. It was dark, cold and silent. The mists swirled about them. The jungles here were strange. The seemingly dead plants had become twisted with new growths of long, sharp spines. Close by, several huge spines had thrust their way upwards from the ground. Another spire-like plant was lazily billowing clouds of small spores into the air. The jungle itself was changing. It too had become infected by the Tyranids. Their strange, twisted biology was taking over the planet and evolving it to their needs. Cullen immediately ordered the twisted plant life destroyed with a flamethrower, whilst the surviving flight crew engaged the emergency beacon and tried to raise anybody on the comms net. The locating beacon silently flashed out the Thunderhawk's location, but the comms had been reduced to a pile of sparking wires and fuses in the impact. Other battle brothers were at work cutting their dreadnought, Brother Haller, from the wreckage. The dreadnought had survived the crash, but was trapped inside the forward hull. Gradually, the space marines managed to open the fold's front ramp, and the dreadnought was freed. Commander Cullen knew it would not take the Tyranids long to find them, 
Fifteen space marines and one dreadnought. How long could they expect to survive in this tyranid-infested jungle? Cullen was determined to make it long enough for a rescue mission to reach them. He organised the defence of the crash site, whilst the flight crew set about salvaging what they could from the wreckage. At the vicinity of containment area Omega, the journey of ten kilometres would not take long, but the jungle terrain made the going difficult. Despite this, Apothecary Rial's convoy smashed through the undergrowth in a helter-skelter ride, tracks churning the muddy ground as the Razorbacks and Rhinos wallowed through the wet swamplands. Less than a kilometre to go now. He watched the Rhino's control screen as the locator beacon's winking light drew ever closer. Still no communication from the Thunderhawk or his commander. The Orspex readout showed multiple targets just ahead. The armoured convoy raced into the battle, weapons blazing. Meanwhile, at the crash site, Commander Cullen, Brother Haller and their men were surrounded. The Tyranids hadn't taken long to find them, and they were cautiously closing in for the kill. Cullen checked his ammunition counter one last time. It wasn't enough. When the Tyranids came, the fight would be short and brutal, and he did not expect to live long. But he would take as many of the Tyranids with him as he could. He would tear them apart with his own power-gauntleted hands until the last of his strength was spent. After 200 years of service, today the Emperor would finally embrace him. He did not fear death. He welcomed it. He feared nothing. And without fear, death had no meaning. Off to his right, a bolt gun sounded. A burst of fire ripped through the surrounding undergrowth, followed by the drumbeat of rapid explosions. His final hour had begun. He saw Brother Haller, knee-deep in swampy water, wade forwards. His inferno cannon lit and aimed. Cullen placed the sight reticule of his helmet display on the closest target. Gaunts sliding through the undergrowth and opened fire. The storm bolter barked and roared, its bolt rounds cutting into a gaunt and exploding within, tearing the creature apart in a fountain of flesh and blood. He fired again, then again. The crescendo of battle rose about him. Haller's inferno cannon roared a flaming jet of burning Prometheum into the jungle. Gaunts screeched as the flames shriveled them into blackened husks. The Dreadnought waded forward again as the survivors pounced on him. His power fist caught one gaunt and crushed it effortlessly. Others bounced off the Dreadnought's great weight as it clubbed left and right. From the jungles behind the gaunts came a far larger creature, huge and powerfully built, four long claws extended from its squat, ugly torso. The Carnifex roared a challenge at the Dreadnought and charged forward, head lowered. The sudden impact of the two Leviathans shook the ground. The Carnifex's claws scythed down, smashing into Brother Haller, barbs tearing away armour plates. But the Dreadnought withstood the blows, grasping forward with its own power fist, servos screaming as it caught a claw, wrenched it backwards hard and tore the limb away whole. The Carnifex staggered, gushing blood and ichor from its wound. Brother Haller didn't pause, but barreled forward, meeting the Carnifex's ferocity with his own. His power fist hammered into the Carnifex again, smashing bone and splintering the beast's armor carapace. It was a blow that would have halted a charging battle tank, but the Carnifex would not die. Grievously wounded, its claws sliced hard into the dreadnought. One blow struck Haller's right arm, severing his inferno cannon, and the ammunition detonated. An orange fireball 
rose above the melee, ignited Promethean spraying from the ruptured fuel tanks. Heedless, the two great war machines grappled on, still hammering blows at each other as the Inferno engulfed them. Commander Cullen could see the titanic clash of adamantium and steel against flesh and hardened bone. Both were terribly wounded and on fire. The dreadnought staggered, tottering backwards as if it might fall, as blow after blow pummeled into him. The commander was powerless to intervene. Already another wave of tyranids were massing. Brother Haller knew his systems were failing. His responses were growing slower. The complex life support system that kept him alive inside his armoured sarcophagus were badly damaged. But the Carnifex was also dying, weakened by its wounds and the flames that had surrounded them. Haller leveled his storm bolter and opened fire at point-blank range, round after explosive round, riddling his enemy. The Carnifex lunged through the bolter rounds, ignorant of the damage each shell was causing as they blew chunks of armor and flesh away. With the creature's last strength, it drove a long claw at the dreadnought sarcophagus, puncturing the front glasses, barbs ripping deep into its inner workings. Impaled, Brother Haller staggered, then fell as the weight of the creature pushed him backwards. The Carnifex also toppled forwards, locked in a deathly embrace. Crashing into the swampy water, both came to rest, dead. Brother Haller was gone. Commander Cullen knew the end was near. Amphilian base. I write this in great urgency. Our situation worsens by the hour. It is clear to me now that we are facing a tyrannid threat far greater than could have been imagined. From a few samples, we have ascertained that this planet is now infested with tyrannids of all genus types. Commander Cullen is out of contact, his Thunderhawk having crashed into the jungle after coming under attack. Against my orders, a rescue mission has been launched. I have little hope that there will be any survivors of this folly. Laboratory Area Gamma has come under sustained attack. The Cadian garrison force there is encircled and cannot break out. There is no relief force I can send to them, and soon they too will be overrun. Most of the Elysian's aircraft have been destroyed. The remaining strength of my force is now trapped at the command complex. Worse still, I have received communication from the captain of the Cephaestus that he has new orders from a higher authority than mine. There has been a delay in my orders for an evacuation reaching him, and thus, for the moment, left us stranded. Captain Morden shall face the full wrath of the Inquisition for this incompetence. It is a matter of utmost urgency that this confusion is rectified and an evacuation begun. I must, I feel, press you for news regarding the promised reinforcements. Ground surveyor units report the Tyranids are massing for an overwhelming attack. We do not have long left. To Inquisitor Solomon Locke. It is with deep regret that I must inform you that the reinforcements I had ordered to your aid have had to be recalled as a matter of utmost urgency. I can no longer offer any assistance in this matter and trust only in the Emperor to deliver you from this terrible predicament. Praise the Emperor. Amphilian Base, Command Complex. Surveyor readings are off to scale, Lord, reported the Guardsman gravely as he peered at the Surveyor screen, a growing look of alarm on his face. Locke knew what was coming. Out there in the jungles, the Tyranids were massing, and soon they would come to finish him off. Their raids had weakened his defences, but he had to hold on in case an evacuation could be effected. Whoever had issued the Cephaestus's new instructions had made a bad mistake if he escaped from this death trap, he would see them pay for it. For now, however, he looked to his defences. 
His inventory of men made solemn reading. Half the Elysian's D Company had been eliminated. The Space Marines had disobeyed his orders and were now pursuing their own agenda, another matter that would need punishing upon his return. The Cadians had also taken heavy losses. Three companies had already been annihilated. The others had taken some losses. In all, his force consisted of no more than 300 men. Yet, they must hold out. Just then, he heard the first sound of firing, the clear snap of lasgun shots and the heavy bark of the base's autocannon defence turrets. The enemy were coming. Inquisitor Locke levelled his bolt pistol and took careful aim into the forest. He saw a gaunt, snarling face, its weapon convulsing and spitting maggot-like shells. Squeezing the trigger, he felt the heavy pistol recoil as the shell launched and watched as the gaunt's head was smashed apart by the micro-explosion of the warhead. He took aim and fired again. The Tyranids came in hordes, gaunts first, wave after wave of the creatures, baring their fangs, filling the air with screaming bio-ammunition. From their defensive positions in the gun pits and behind sandbags, the guardsmen, Cadians and Elysians side by side returned fire. This was just the start, a probe to see where his defences were strongest. They would look for a weak spot, an attacking strength there. Wherever that attack came, Inquisitor Locke would be, holding the line for all the guardsmen to see. The Elysians showed remarkable courage. As the Gaunts closed in, some leapt up, combat knives in hand, and pushed them back, screaming like banshees. It was rash, and no training manual ever taught such foolhardy bravery when fighting Tyranids, but it was effective. He saw one man grappling with a termagant, plunging his knife repeatedly into its torso as it writhed on the floor, tail lashing. The man staggered clear, covered in his own blood and the bile of the beast he had just butchered, then launched himself at another beast. From all around the perimeter, the Imperial Guard's heavy weapons opened fire, the smoke trail of missile launchers lancing into the undergrowth to explode, heavy bolters rattling a stream of shells. The Tyranids were dying, but they did not stop. They came on, more and more of them, swarms of little rippers seething over the ground, and now Locke could see the looming shapes of larger creatures beyond. Warriors, perhaps even a hive tyrant. They returned fire. Running to a new firing position, he leapt into the sandbagged weapons pit to find the crew dead. Their heavy bolter was hissing and melting from some corrosive venom that had splashed over it. The first crewman was little more than a heap of sticky entrails and bone, the venom having eaten him away. The second man was still recognisable, but his skull was exposed where his face had been scorched away. Ignoring the sickening stench, the Inquisitor emptied his magazine, tossed a fragmentation grenade in the mass of rippers, reloaded, then opened fire again. To his left, he saw a hellhound rumble slowly into place, grinding the soft ground to mud, engine throbbing and belching fumes. Its turrets slowly rotated to take aim at the jungle tree line. Locke felt the heat wave hit him as the Inferno cannon fired. A stream of flaming Prometheum arced out, splashing the foliage with fiery liquid. The jungle burned brightly in the gloom. He saw flaming Tyranid creatures stumble from their cover. Many were still on fire as they charged forwards, heedless of the flames that were engulfing them. Others fell dead, shriveled by the intense heat. The Hellhound fired again, playing a stream of Prometheum across the tree line to become a flaming wall. From the jungle's cover, the burning vines were slowly flung apart as a massive, bulky form charged forward through the flames. It was huge, 
six metres tall, all talons, tusks and claws. It ran forward through a storm of lasgun fire, smouldering from the flames, and smashed headlong into the front of the Hellhound. The 40-ton armoured vehicle, dwarfed by its attacker, was lifted clear off the ground by the impact, and the beast's massive claws punched down, clean through the front glasses to where the driver would be sat. From the turret hatch, the vehicle's commander bailed out, lumbering clear as the beast struck again and again. It seemed unstoppable. They had to fall back and give themselves more room. Locke gave the order over the comms net and shouted out for those around to follow him. The guardsmen rose from their firing positions and joined him in a sprint back towards the buildings, still firing left and right as they ran. Looking over his shoulder, he saw the monstrous creature discard the hellhound like a child's toy. Highly volatile liquid leaking from its ruptured fuel tank, the still smouldering beast screamed a challenge and lumbered on. The Inquisitor and his ragged bunch of survivors clustered around a doorway. The Hyrajul was coming straight for them. He aimed again and squeezed off a stream of bolts which exploded, chipping away lumps of carapace. But the beast did not even break stride. Locke drew his power sword and thumbed the tiny power field generator in the weapon's pummel into life, which throbbed and crackled with power. With me, he instructed the guardsmen around him, preparing to charge. As he did so, the creature staggered sideways under an impact. The blinding beam of a las cannon slashed through the darkness, striking the creature and burning through its thick armoured plates. It roared, even in pain or frustration. He saw the headlights of a razorback approaching, its turret weaponry locked on to the monster in front of him. The las cannons fired again, and this time the creature staggered and collapsed in a spray of bile and ichor. Locke seized his chance. He leapt forward and plunged his power sword point first into the stricken leviathan's head. The power field sparked lightning as the sword thrust deep. The herodule writhed and then died as Locke ducked clear of its flailing claws. The red scorpions had returned. A column of armoured transports, rhinos and razorbacks came roaring into the perimeter. Space marines debussed by squads, bulk guns blazing. The Razorbacks' heavy weapons targeted the larger creatures. Amidst them, the Inquisitor could see Commander Cullen still issuing orders and directing fire. The Space Marines turned the tide of the battle, driving the Tyranids back into the jungle with the ferocity of their sudden counterattack. Soon the Tyranids had withdrawn, but they would not be far away. Like a predator staying close to its prey, the timely arrival of the Space Marines had brought them some much-needed time. The first Tyranid assault had been repulsed, but others would soon follow. My authority now supersedes yours, Lord Inquisitor. Commander Cullen stood upon the ramp of his Thunderhawk gunship. Behind him, a Thunderhawk transporter was raising two Razorbacks on its loading claws, the last of the Red Scorpion strike force to be loaded. My orders are to evacuate the planet's surface. The situation here means my priorities have changed. My men are no longer under your command. We are not expendable assets. Cullen betrayed no emotions. He had orders. They must be followed. The Inquisitor's anger at his decision to evacuate had not swayed him for a second. He felt no pity. Inquisitor Locke was furious. This is treachery, Commander. Your strike force still has a mission to complete. The authority of the Emperor is invested in me. I am bearer of the Inquisitorial Mandate. The Conclave of Ha will hear of this base treachery 
and you and your chapter will face the severest of retributions. In the name of the Emperor, I command your men to stand fast. Your mission is irrelevant, Cullen declared, and turned and walked up the ramp. Inside the Thunderhawk, his men were awaiting his order to launch. Powerless to intervene, Locke watched as the nose ramp slammed shut and the gunship's engine pitch rose. The Thunderhawk lifted off, the engines boomed, and it rocketed skywards towards orbit. It was soon out of sight. Locke surveyed the base. At the tired, wounded, sallow-eyed guardsman still dug in around his shrinking perimeter. He knew now that he had been betrayed, not just by the Red Scorpions, but also by some higher authority still. His authority had been undermined, and now it seemed he was to be sacrificed on Beta Amphilian Four. He trudged back to the control centre, resigned to his fate. All that was left to do was make a final log entry. He doubted it would ever reach the Conclave's advocate judge. The shadow in the warp was so dense now, Astropath Zanek was unsure if anything was getting through. It was worth a last try, if only because the Conclave would at least know his fate, and retribution could be taken against those who had plotted against him. To the Conclave of Har, Amphilian Base, Beta Amphilian Four. The first Tyranid attack has been repulsed barely. Losses are again heavy. My force is reduced to just 120 able-bodied men. Still no contact from the Cephaestus, although repeated attempts have been made to contact the vessel. The betrayal runs deeper still. Commander Cullen has begun his own evacuation operation, and as I dictate this entry, we are to be abandoned to our fate. On whose orders? For what reason? I do not know. How long we can hold out, I cannot say. We will fight to the last. Hours, days, it matters not. For without assistance, death now is certain. Firing started. They are coming again. This is the final entry in this log. The Emperor knows I was a loyal servant until the end. Death to the alien. Amphilian Base, Command Complex. Even as he finished his dictation, the Inquisitor heard the faint sound of firing. The Tyranids were attacking again. As an Inquisitor of the Ordo Xenos, it was his sworn duty to purge the galaxy of any alien threat to mankind. He would do so with his dying breath. He drew his power sword from its scabbard. Sign off the log entry with death to the alien. He instructed his scribe and made for the exit. Outside, the fog had gathered about the base. It lent the battle a strange, surreal, detached air. Respirator-faced soldiers emerged from the thick white blanket to scurry by. Searchlight beams reflected a white wall of swirling mist. Nazgun blasts made the fog cloud glow from the inside like a living entity. He felt the first slight burning sensation of the ammonia in his throat and pulled his own helmet into place. At the perimeter, he ducked behind the wreckage of a Valkyrie, destroyed on its landing pad. A squad of Cadians were crouching close by, firing into the jungle. The screams and cries of the Tyranid monsters echoed through the fog. As he watched, a brood of Hormagaunts bounded from the undergrowth with dazzling speed straight at them. Their reckless charge was cut down by Lasgun blasts, but more followed. He took aim, his last clip of bolt pistol ammunition already loaded. He added his own shots to the Cadian's firepower. Behind the Hormagaunts came taller warriors, stalking the jungle on their back limbs, erect above the heads of the smaller Gaunts. Still further back, something larger 
and heavier was crashing through the jungle. Its footfalls made the ground tremble. The skies of drifting fog parted long enough for Inquisitor Locke to see the approaching Hierophant that towered above the trees on long, spiny limbs, its huge, ugly head full of fangs which dripped bile and mandibles that gleamed with acid. The bio-titan was massive. How could it have avoided being detected? All fire. Target the bio-titan, he ordered, and directing the fire of his remaining squads. Lazblast simply glanced off its carapace, but the Cadian's Laz cannons blew huge, smoldering chunks out of the beast. It roared and smashed its way towards them. Locke ducked behind some sandbags and reached to his belt. From it, he pulled all six crack grenades and quickly bound them together. Heavy weapons fire was slashing over his head. The Bio-Titan came closer. Locke pulled out his power sword once again and prepared himself for one last heroic effort. The creature was so tall, it easily passed over the top of him. Looking up, he saw its hideous maw drooling poison, clouds of spores spewing from wrens in its thick armor plates. Leaping to his feet, Locke aimed the crack grenade bundle. As he did so, long, stringy tendrils lashed out from the bio-titan's belly, barbed hooks slashing at him. He parried hard with his sword, cutting two tendrils clean off. A third hooked him and with effortless force, flipped him sideways through the air. He hit the ground hard, dropping his sword and grenades. The bio-killer stamped down hard, trying to impale him with its clawed feet. He rolled away, just in time, grasping for the grenades. As he did so, another Laz cannon impact rocked the creature. Great gobbets of rank blood and ichor rained down on the Inquisitor. His armor sizzled with acid burns. Seizing his chance, he grabbed the grenade bundle and with his last remaining strength stuffed it between two of the creature's chitin plates. As he did so, the lash whip tendrils slashed out again. Wounded, Locke fell, sprawling in the mud. He tried to crawl, but could not move. Above him, the bio-titan loomed massive, and then it was gone. The massive explosion ripped away the underside of the creature, spilling its slimy internal organs out in a torrent of bile. Its legs buckled, and with a last strangled scream, the titan collapsed, dead. Exhausted and in pain, Locke lay in the mud, looking skywards. His beautiful, ornate armor was rent and torn. Acid had burned clean through in places. His helmet had been torn off. Inside, his body was ruined and broken. As he tried to... Pull himself up, two Cadian guardsmen ran to his aid. With their help, he staggered to his feet, coughing up blood. His face singed and melted. He looked down for his power sword. Lacking the strength to wield it, it might at least act as a good prop. Lord, one guardsman inquired. Locke looked at him. Both men were looking past him, into the sky. A rescue ship was coming. Reinforcements had arrived. They had survived. Slowly, the Inquisitor turned to look, and through the parting fog clouds, saw two more bio-titans approaching. Locke was amazed. The hive mind had evolved so quickly. From just a few experimental samples, the Tyranids had just grown out of control, evolving and evolving into the familiar forms it knew would defeat the foe. It had been a mistake to think the hive mind could be tamed for experimentation. It would never submit 
like some whipped captive animal. It thirsted for prey. It needed to kill and consume. In those final moments, as the tyrannid swarms broke in and the last of his men were dying around him, Inquisitor Locke saw the full horror of the truth. The tyrannids could not be stopped. There could be no victory for the Imperium in this war. In his last moments, as the bio-killers closed in, Locke felt cold-hearted despair. This small force stood for all of mankind, and they would inevitably be annihilated. Mankind would fight on, but it was already doomed. From Inquisitor Lord Varius, destination unknown. The completion of my latest operation on Beta Amphilium 4 signals the end of this experimental phase of the Amphilium project. It was with great satisfaction that I signed the Exterminatus Order for Beta Amphilium 4. The facility had long ago proved ineffective for the purposes it was established for. Experiments to reverse the super-evolutionary traits of the Tyranids had all ended in abject failure. It fell to me to close down the base and purge the garrison. Instead, I turned the facility to a far better use. My agent on Beta Amphilium 4 arranged for the sabotage of the containment vents, thus exposing the facility's inhabitants to the Tyranids and providing the perfect testing ground for our Amphilium project. The sacrifice of the 1,500-strong garrison was a necessary step to attain our far greater objective and a small price to pay in a war for mankind's very survival. The demise of Inquisitor Solomon Locke not only eliminated a potential political rival, and I believe a dangerous Puritan with contacts amongst the outlawed Vindicatus faction within the Ordo Xenos, but provided us with much-needed evidence before moving to the next phase of the project. In death, Locke has served the Emperor's and our own purposes well. The forces I selected for deployment on Beta Amphilium 4 have provided me with all the data I require to move to the next phase of the Amphilium project. Progonoid samples and data I have requested and received from the Master of the Apothecary of the Red Scorpions chapter, and this has been analysed in detail. Given the Strike Force's excellent performance during the project, I believe the chapter's gene seed is perfectly suited to be the basis of our proposed new founding. The chapter's gene seed has proved to be remarkably untainted, retaining 94% of all zygote functions. My biologist is only concern being to regulate the overactive Betcher's gland, uh, common to the entire chapter, and adapt the Amophagi's activity to better suit the new chapter's future role. The data the chapter has provided for me will help to sway the members of the Conclave that the founding of new chapters is now a step closer to being realised. These Red Scorpion successor chapters would form the core of a fighting force to be placed at our disposal, with the specific mission of halting and then annihilating forever the Tyranid race. It is my firm belief that so far our efforts to halt the advance of this alien menace have been hampered by restrictive bureaucracy and an overly pessimistic analysis of the nature of the enemy. The Tyranid foe is defeatable, as I have proved by my operations on Dantris Free. It will take the single-minded will of a leader able to take the necessary actions and given the necessary resources. The Inquisitorial representative on Holy Terror has twice denied me the right to lift the ban on the founding of new Space Marine chapters. With the aid of the Red Scorpion's gene seed, adapted to better resist the effects of the hive mind, I believe our new chapters 
would prove the greatest bulwark against the hated alien. Reports of the actions of Special Unit D-99 have also interested me greatly. Since Dantris Free was saved, the possibility of creating new Imperial Guard regiments using experimental techniques I first sanctioned on Dantris Free, and which have again proved so effective on Beta Amphilium 4, also moved a step closer. With regiments of such troops at our command, we could launch a crusade to recapture those worlds lost to the Kraken, and in time, eventually drive the Hive Fleets to extinction. For this is our divinely inspired purpose. Let nothing stand in our way. Regarding Amphilium Project, Ordo Hereticus New Investigation. This astropathic transmission was intercepted and decrypted by the Ordo Hereticus Sanctum Telepathica and brought to the attention of the officio of the Inquisitorial Representative on Backer. By direct order of the Inquisitorial Representative, Inquisitor Lord Varius, uh, lately Advocate Judge to the Conclave of Ha, Count of Dantris, Cleanser of Domanskia, has been placed under investigation by the Ordo Hereticus upon suspicion of exceeding his inquisitorial mandate with regard to the above-named Amphilium project. Further investigations are also to be made into the actions of the Red Scorpions chapter with regard to this matter. Lord Varius's unsound methods represented a threat to the stability of the Emperor's rule and can only be tolerated whilst he continues to produce excellent results against the Tyranid High Fleets. See related files on the Dantris IV campaign and the cleansing of Domanska. For the time being, his access to prescribed biologist data regarding the Tyranids continues to be useful in the ongoing fight, but remains the most damning evidence of his heresy, should action need to be taken against him. Lord Varius's continued close surveillance and the uncovering and identifying of his allied faction is a matter of priority for the Ordo Hereticus. Further action awaits the representative sanction before being forwarded to the Officio Assassinorum's Calidus Temple on Terra. As a precautionary measure, Lord Varius's death warrant has been prepared, but remains unsigned until such time as he outlives his usefulness. To our blessed Imperium. And there we go. Thank you all for watching. I hope you have enjoyed this. A bit of a bit of Tyranid action. I know people always request Tyranid stuff and uh, this has been requested a lot as well over the years now. But yeah, I hope you did enjoy this. It's an odd one. I've done my best to present it in the best way I possibly could. I do hope you did enjoy this. Please do like the video, subscribe if you're not subscribed, share this to anyone you think might enjoy it and let me know in the comments what your thoughts or just leave me a comment. It really helps. It all helps just the channel in general. But anyway, thank you all for watching. Uh, if you're watching as it's released, I know there's been a bit of a gap and for those who don't know, I've just moved house. I've got some life events occurring. Uh, so it's, yeah, basically my time's been taken up. Basically all of September was gone for me because I had to do things. But uh, I am back now as we go into the end of 2022. And uh, yeah, I, I hope you enjoy what's to come. Lots of stuff to come. More sort of campaign videos like this. Uh, some One Piece kind of lore videos. I've got some Space Marine lore videos. A lot of people have requested Space Marine lore videos. Uh, coming up so, uh, recently so I'm going to do my best to do some of them although I've done most of the chapters that are really interesting but I have got some plans to do big sort of long entire histories of legions like from inception through to the current day in 40k and I think that'll be that's the next big project I've got planned and I've started making moves to getting that written uh yeah but we've got some other one-off law videos coming big videos but like sort of on individual subjects I guess you'd say uh and then some campaign videos maybe some story time we'll see if we can fit it in 
I'm reading, a, I'm catching up on my Warhammer books. I've had a bit of a break, probably for about two months, three months, maybe, realistically. So, should have some more reviews coming out soon. I know that isn't probably, every, not everybody's into that, but for those of you who are, those are coming soon. And um, that's pretty much it. Oh, live streams. Might have some more live streams, more regular live streams, especially with Dark Tide and Space Marine 2 coming out. I'll probably do some live streams gaming, uh, you know, showing off my amazing power, and my superiority to all of you. Because I'm a, a, a elite gamer. <laughs> probably. Maybe. Probably not. But that's what I'm going to be doing anyway. So, yeah, that's what's coming up. Thank you all again. If you would like to support the channel, and thank you to everybody who has, especially during this lull in activity. I appreciate it massively. You can support the channel by becoming a YouTube member, becoming a Patreon, a uh, patron over on Patreon, or on Subscribestar if you prefer. I know some people prefer that. But the links for all them are in the description, or you can click the Join button down below. And, you know, shilling, shilling, shill, 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 more shilling, anything in the description, it, it all helps me out, so I appreciate it. And thank you to everybody, and there's been some donations recently, uh, I appreciate that, lads, and I've probably, I've, by this point, I probably should have messaged you uh, separately, and I really appreciate that, uh, really, really helps. I've got a lot of stuff on at the minute, so everything is uh, is good. I know that for everybody, though. Times are uh, going to probably get a bit difficult for everybody, so, yeah, I appreciate your generosity, but don't feel obliged. Unless you do feel obliged, then yeah, I'll take it. <laughs> All right, I'll be back again with more stuff very, very soon. Thanks again for watching. Thanks for, I hope you enjoyed this, you know. I, I like this, the, 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 the callous ability of the Inquisition to just betray everybody. And I, I feel like there isn't so much in the lore anymore. I mean, Eisenhorn's probably the only thing that's really doing that, where they're not just like puritanical sort of, like, I don't know. I don't know. I mean, they are puritanical. That's not what I'm saying. It's just fun. They'll, they'll happily just like destroy a planet <laughs> for fun, you know, or off, off a political opponent and just have these big highfalutin schemes in the background. And it's like this Lord Varius. As soon as he does something, as soon as he pisses someone off, he's dead. He's already dead. They've already got all the evidence on him in the background, you know. His death warrant's already all ready to go. It just needs to be signed. <laughs> I love that. It's good stuff. Anyway. Again, thank you all for watching, and I'll be back again with regular content now. It's going to be stuff coming out on a weekly basis at least, maybe multiple times a week, but at least one video a week at least. I'll see you all again. I'm rambling. Ta-ra. Have a good one. Bye-bye. Enjoy. See you later. Ta-ra.